In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I've personally never known anything like the exile that Jeremiah is addressing here. A people forcibly relocated to a hostile world. Much less what it is to be told, love those people, pray for them, work for their welfare, for in their welfare you'll find your own. Then again, the New Testament depicts the normal Christian life as one of exile. We're not home yet. I hope you know that. And if you think you are home, let's talk. We are citizens, says the New Testament, says Paul in Philippians, of a heavenly commonwealth. And while we wait for kingdom come, we are, as Peter says, strangers and exiles in a world that doesn't get us. Citizens of the city of God trapped in what Augustine called the city of man that doesn't play by God's rules. We're trapped here in the city of man where liars wind up with the microphone, where cheaters do prosper, where virtue is for sale, where moralism substitutes for morality, where kindness is seen as weakness, and meanness is seen as strength. So, yeah, Jeremiah's words are for us. Exiles who are called nonetheless to settle in and seek the welfare of, to care about this city of man and its people. This city of man we find ourselves consigned to, as W.H. Auden so nicely put it, for the time being. So, how might we find our bearings? Great question. That's why we have our passages today. Our passages give us four things to remember, two things to do. First, remember your God parts the waters. Psalm 66, that's its message, that's its premise. Your God not only parts the water, that's like who he is. Your God raises Joseph from the pit his brothers threw him into and from the dungeon Pharaoh consigned him to. Your God delivers Job from the belly of the great fish and from his own lovelessness toward the Ninevites. Your God brings Jeremiah up from the murky, muddy cistern into which bad king Zedekiah had tossed him. Your God delivers a Daniel from the fiery furnace and from the lion's den. Your God time and time again raises David from the desolate pit of persecution from Saul and other enemies and from the pit of his own sinfulness. Amen. I'll take that. <laughs> Remember, that's who your God is, the God who parts the waters where it looks, where the situation looks impossible. Second, remember, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8 in today's reading, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, 
a descendant of David. In his chains, perhaps on the eve of his martyrdom, Paul reminds himself and frail Timothy that Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. This, he says, is my gospel. As in our own day, Yaroslav Pelikan nicely put it. If Christ is raised from the dead, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not raised from the dead, nothing else matters. Remember, he, he parts the waters, he raises the dead. And in your exile, remember God's past faithfulness in your own life and give thanks. Witness the Samaritan in today's gospel reading in, in Luke chapter 17. Ten people are healed. One comes back to say, thanks. Jesus likes that. Well, he doesn't really like the fact that nine don't. But he does really like the fact that one does. And he says, your faith has healed you. Is that not something of which to take note? Think about what testimony you might have to God's healing power. Some of us have experienced physical healing. Some besetting sin that we've been able to let go. A bad habit overcome. An emotional wound bound up. A horrible accident averted. An abuse that we're really dealing with. A dissertation completed. A deal closed. A contract signed. A victory won. A persecution outlasted. A field harvested. A flood cleaned up. Share those stories with one another. And in every case, every case, thanks is due. Jesus likes that. And your healing, your well-being in a world of exile will be deepened. In your exile, remember, he parts the waters. He raises the dead. He brings works of his own faithfulness into your very life. And then fourth, remember God, Christ's promise to see you through despite your own failings. I'm going to ask you to give me a few moments to deal with one of the trickiest passages in all the New Testament. It is, as we read today, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. If you want to look at the text, it's on page 165 in the New Testament section of your pew Bible or whatever page in your own Bible. Listen to these four carefully crafted if-then clauses. If we have died with him, that is with Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Notice there are four if clauses here, and each of the first three ifs is followed by an also. And the logic of these three clauses is a natural. If X, then also Y. One thing follows another. A person receives the expected result of their action. So, 
if we have shared in Christ's death, then it follows that we will also live with him. Paul's simply carrying forward, forward here what he'd said in Romans chapter 6, verse 8. If we endure, it follows that we will also reign with him. Paul carrying forth carrying forward what he had said in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, and chapter 8, verse 17. Now, the third if clause also has an also, but it is otherwise an unusual construction. It actually has a future tense in the Greek in the if clause, which is difficult to bring out in English, but it's something like, if we will deny him, it's a form of expression Greek writers to use to use to express something that they really don't want to happen, that they're afraid of and are trying to avoid. The gist is this, if lamentably on the last day we should deny Jesus, well, he will also have to deny us. And that is what Jesus, in fact, said during his earthly ministry, whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. This is the trajectory of life that Paul fears that some people in Ephesus are following, and he, he, wants them to, he wants them to avoid it. But it's the fourth if clause that at first sounds really scary, but we need to pay a little closer attention to it. It's, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The fourth if clause doesn't have an also. In this case, the faithless person does not get what they ought to get. Here, from Paul's own life, what Paul has learned is that despite his faithlessness, Jesus remains faithful and full of mercy. Christ Jesus, here's what Paul says back in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Christ Jesus, our Lord, judged me faithful, even though I wasn't, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly or faith in, ignorantly in faithlessness. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The faithfulness and the faith that was not in him, Paul says, came to him as a gift because they were already in Jesus. Where Paul was faithless, he confesses, Jesus was faithful on his behalf. Where he was loveless and deserving of no mercy, Jesus was love and mercy on his behalf. That's who Jesus is, for he cannot deny himself. Paul wants to fortify Timothy and us by reminding him and us of the utter grace of God in the face of apprehension indecisiveness or timidity. And as we saw last week, despite the constant temptation to run and hide, which I know none of us can relate to, Timothy can trust Christ to provide the courage he cannot find within himself. The point for us in this fourth remembrance, remember that we, even when we are faithless, he is faithful for us, because he can't deny himself. Even in our faithlessness, our final hope is the faithfulness of Christ. He cannot deny himself. Just as Jesus bid the children come to him, he likewise encourages us to come too. If we put out our hand 
no matter how tentatively, no matter how feebly, he will securely clasp it with his own. And once he has taken hold of us, he cannot let go. That's who he is. So, four things to remember. God parts the waters. He raises the dead. He works faithfulness things in our lives. And even when we are faithless, he is faithful for us. Leaving us, a people in exile, thinking about these things, trying to get our bearings, here are two things that we do from Jeremiah. First, what Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city and pray on its behalf. Let's take that second half first. Pray. Pray for just rule. It is no small thing when week after week, We pray for our leaders. In Romans chapter 13, Paul says to honor rulers and pay taxes. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, look it up, it's page 162. Paul goes further. He says, pray for authorities so that we might live in a climate of peace. Now note, Paul does not say pray to authorities, but pray for them. It's important for Paul to have said this. Back in his day, in the, first, in the middle of the first century B.C., there was an inscription in Ephesus where Julius Caesar was called God manifest and Savior. Well, he, no, Jesus is God manifest and Savior. And then in, early in the first century, A.D., there's a proclamation from the same region saying, that Caesar Augustus's birthday is the beginning of good news. Euangelion, the same word the New Testament uses, for the world. No, Jesus's birthday is the beginning of good news for the world. So, hear me. Paul does not have messianic expectations of governing authorities. They're not going to save us. So sometimes people in politics present themselves as messiahs who will save us. And some people do seem to look at the political process as though it will save us. It won't. So it's not about praying to political authorities. At the same time, Paul does not encourage cynicism about those authorities. Thus, whether we like them or not, We pray for them, and we pray for them by their first name, just as the Church of England, as they were uh, putting Queen Elizabeth to rest, they prayed for her as our sister Elizabeth, because we share a common humanity, no matter what our rank. So we pray for our president, our governor, and our mayors by the first name, because they, like us, are but human beings And we ask the Lord to work in their lives the same way he works for us. We pray for them that they might create a climate for human flourishing and gospel advancement. So we pray. Second, we engage. Be ready to participate in civic life. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Some of the most penetrating and powerful verses in the New Testament on civic responsibility. Page 166, if you want to look it up, check me out. Remind them then 
to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. Here Paul, here Paul urges not to mere passive obedience to authorities above us, but he urges us to active engagement in the political process himself. And he's no more a policy wonk than I am. He's a pastor, and I am too. But in the context of civic responsibility, Paul calls upon us to be not only obedient, but also ready for every good work. Seek the welfare of the city. These are significant words because in Paul's day, some people who were in a financial and social position to serve their cities were ab abdicating their often costly public responsibilities heading for the countryside. And in, in our day, you, you, you can't recruit the next George Washington to serve because the atmosphere is so toxic. They're going to go, honorable people are going like, ain't having nothing to do with that. But Paul says, think about that. And many of us, just washing our hands of the whole thing, turning off, tuning out, and saying, a plague on both your houses. But Paul says, stay engaged. He goes on to specify how to do so. Listen. These are revolutionary words for people who would be engaged. The word he uses for obedient is probably better rendered as persuadable. That's paith arcane. It has at the beginning the verb patho, that is to persuade. Be willing to be persuaded. It means to listen. And to be ready to be convinced, even if that's easier to do when some people are, are at the microphone and harder to do when others are at the microphone. You're, you're like me, I'm sure. When some people get up to the podium, you're going like, tell me what I already believe. And other people are like, I don't care what you say, you're probably wrong. We need to be willing to be persuaded. That is, when people that we tend to like, get to the microphone, we need to ask ourselves, are we being offered persuasive arguments or are we being merely confirmed in our prejudices? When other people get to the microphone that we would be disinclined to believe, we need to ask ourselves whether perhaps there are persuasive arguments here that cause us to reconsider our pre-commitments. Be persuadable. Paul goes on to say, as if he hadn't meddled enough, he says that in the public square, we are to listen, speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every kindness, sorry, and to show every courtesy to everyone. Oh my goodness. What a difference we could make if that's the world, even in our exile, even if this is the world, 
even if that's what the world expected of Christians seeking justice in the corridors of power. But that's just what people who remember that God parts the waters, who remember Christ Jesus raised from the dead, who remember God's past faithfulnesses in their own lives, and who remember Christ's faithfulness to them despite their own failings, that's just what such people can do. Pray for and seek the welfare of the city of their exile. May it be so with us. Amen.